Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to a new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans and hosting with me today is the one and only Virginia Allen. Uh, It's always great to be here. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. To celebrate the holiday, we have a special episode for you. During the holiday season, we're going to try something a little different and we want to interview some of the women that we look up to here at Heritage and just in our everyday lives. So to start us off, we have a dear friend of ours with us in studio, Maria Sousa. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Maria Sousa is the digital director at the Heritage Foundation. So she oversees all our social media platforms, our website, all of our email products. Maria is also a wife and mother of four children, all under the age of 13, right? Correct. Wow. It's a little hectic. (laughs) Okay, but let's jump right in by talking about how you ended up here at Heritage. What was your path to becoming a director and overseeing a whole team? So I've been here for 16 years. So I've been here a long time. I have not been the digital director that whole time. So I came to Heritage. Actually, I needed an internship credit to graduate from Catholic U. And a friend of mine was working here and knew that there was an opening and an opportunity. And so I actually got a full-time job. I was just taking one class to finish up and needed that internship credit as well. And so that's really what brought me here. And then I stayed. So I've really loved working at Heritage. Obviously, I don't think anyone stays anywhere for 16 years if they don't love where they work. But I actually worked in the same department, technically, in the same space that I'm in now. The department names have changed, but I've always worked on the web. I was a media studies major. So finding the admin job within on the team at the time was really great. And then I I just stuck around. So... I think that gets me to most of the answers to your question. (laughs) So did you always know that you wanted to work in this digital space and eventually work your way up to managing a whole team? You know, that's a great question. I think that I picked media studies as my major because I loved communication. I loved kind of the media side of journalism. I like to write. I'm not a great writer, so I knew I didn't want to write forever. And then it just really fell in my lap. So I love doing what we do. Managing people, I think, has kind of always been in my blood. I'm number two in a big family. I know we're going to talk about that later. But I think that I, by default, am good at kind of managing projects and people and, and keeping all the moving parts moving. So it is a good fit. So you have four beautiful children. I've met all of them. and But I do know that they can be a handful. And then you have to get them all to school and come to Heritage. And you have a busy calendar and a full staff to manage. How do you deal with it all? <laughs> lots of prayer. <laughs> the goal is lots of sleep. I don't get as much, I think, as I need most days. But I also have an amazing, amazing husband and kids that are really becoming a part of that. And so my oldest is 12. She's a girl. She's really helpful and thoughtful and organized. And so we're a team. I know that I I probably come here. Actually, my once I drop the children off, I definitely kind of turn off all the things. So if we're listening to music or we were we were chatting, they leave, there's quiet and I kind of enjoy that quiet for, for those next 15 to 18 minutes pulling into the garage here. And that's my me time. That's my prayer time. That's my time to kind of think and reflect and get ready for what's next. But it's actually, it's really the only time of the day that I have to myself until the end of the day. I joke as I leave here, I think that I'm on to my next job, 
the more important one for sure for my family. But they are what keeps me motivated at work and vice versa. I really feel like if I can successfully get them ready for their day and off to school, then I can come here and be focused on working and and helping to provide for our family. And you mentioned earlier that you come from a big family as well. You're one of nine children. (laughs) So what was that like growing up with so many siblings and I'm sure constantly so much happening in your home? Yeah. So it was awesome. I don't know how my parents did it. So yes, I have four of my own and I'm doing it. But I still ask my mom that question all the time. My parents are awesome. They really taught us to take care of one another to really just really enjoy the community of what a family is. That's kind of echoed throughout my life as well, even before I had my own family. But being from a big family is still really persistent in my life right now. My two youngest sisters are college age, and they help me pick up my kids. They do a lot of babysitting with me, and they are a huge part of my kids' lives as well. So I wouldn't have it any other way. Four brothers, four sisters, the four sisters I consider my best friends. The brothers as well, girls, you know, just in a closer sisterly way. I feel like without my family and without my parents really teaching us to value hard work and working together, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. And I don't think that, you know, my my kids would have that experience as well, kind of lived through. So I feel really lucky and very blessed. And I think they did it through their faith, kind of, you know, my mom will always say, well, God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle, right? And then he also gives you the tools and the means to take care of whatever it is that you think you can't handle. So again, I'm grateful for that, that example they gave us growing up. And we are still very much a part of each other's support system, even today. So also untraditional about your story, you paid your way through college, (laughs) and you managed to graduate without any sort of major debt. So my question is how? Sure. So I did I did take out student loans. So I did have student loan debt. Nothing crazy to your point. And then I was able to, you know, pay it off over the course of the next few years after. But yeah, so growing up in a big family, we all always just knew and spoke openly about it with my parents that my parents were not able to pay nine college tuitions. And so it was just an understanding that we'd have to figure out a way to pay our, our own way to, through school. And I think they instilled in us a really, like I said, a really important kind of desire to do hard work and to do it well, but also to make sure that if there were things that we wanted that we were working hard to get them. We don't we didn't just grow up. My parents didn't have a lot. And so we we didn't grow up just getting the things that we needed or wanted whenever we wanted them. We had to really earn them. And so I had a job as soon as I was old enough to have a job. And then that continued. So I worked my way through school. I had a couple of part time jobs. I worked some different years. I worked some work-study jobs on campus at school. I commuted to save money. So I went to a school that was close enough to my my home that I could live, I could stay with my parents and save money. And then I worked, I did a lot of babysitting and I did a lot of the type of work that I could do in the evenings and the weekends with with my family. One of the things that I did is I actually 
not only babysat, but I, I helped kids with autism in their own homes. So on the weekends and the evenings, I could work with them and do therapy with them as well. So I kind of had all the jobs, all the different types of jobs. I worked in a newspaper. I worked at different places. And yeah, and so I paid my way through school. I actually took a little bit of time off because I was feeling really kind of stressed to finish on time, but also to be able to pay those last few semesters. So I took a semester off and then I I came back and kind of took a full year to complete. So I ended up not graduating, not walking with my original class, but I, again, I wouldn't have changed it. I really felt like I was able to work and save up money and come back and be ready to to complete my my last year of school. And Maria, you're one of the few people who I've ever met who is a true D.C. native. You were <laughs> born here, but you're also a practicing Catholic and a conservative. So what has it been like growing up and, and now raising kids in a city that is so liberal? Sure. So, again, I think, I mean, you hit on it with the Catholic faith. I feel like I have a way to answer all those tough questions because of my faith. And so that's really what we're teaching our children as well. I also feel like it's a gift that we live in a place where they, at a very early age, have to really be able to confront differences of opinion and differences in the way that people live their lives. And I've even seen through my kids, they don't go to a Catholic school, but you know, they they kind of have figured out through conversations that they've had with their friends, like who goes to church and who believes in God. And when you can find those commonalities with people, I think that really helps. My immediate family is big, but my extended family is huge, too. And a lot of them are in the area and a lot of them, you know, are really still practicing their faith. I have a brother who's a priest. And so we really have that faith support system that really just kind of weaves throughout everything else we do. My children, we teach our children, just like Jesus would, to love everyone, to care for everyone, and to be kind to everyone. You don't have to be everyone's best friend and agree with them on everything, but to engage in dialogue and discussion and be able to be ready for the real world, which unfortunately, as we all know, is not the easiest comes to having that, you know, a real discussion and a real dialogue about issues and differences of opinion. So you know, there's there's a few things that are really, really important to our family. The life issue is another, you know, a really, really big one. So a lot stems from that, too. Right. So if we can be pro-life in every aspect of what we do and, you know, really instill that in our in our kids, I feel like they have they've got a resource. They've got a way to say, this is what my faith teaches me and this is what my family believes. And that's why I, I live my life the way that I do. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be diving into one of our favorite topics with Maria, the Enneagram. So stay tuned. <laughs> Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. All right, welcome back. So, Maria, Virginia and I always had this sneaking suspicion that you were an Enneagram 2, like Virginia. And in preparation for this interview, you took the test and confirmed. <laughs> and for those who might not know what in the Enneagram test is, uh, I started out, let's just go over the Merriam-Webster definition of the Enneagram. 
It's a system of classifying personality types that is based on a nine-pointed star-like figure described within a circle in which each of the nine points represents a personality type and its psychological motivations, such as the need to be right or helpful, influencing a person's emotions, attitude, and behavior. So, like me, Maria, you're a two which the Enneagram Institute defines as twos are empathetic, sincere, and warm-hearted. They're friendly, generous, and self-sacrificing, but can also be sentimental, flattering, and people-pleasing. Being generous and going out of their way for others makes twos feel that there is a richness and a meaningfulness to life. The love and concern that they feel and the genuine good they do warms their hearts and makes them feel worthwhile in their life. Twos are most interested in what they feel to be the really, really good things in life. Love, closeness, sharing, family and friends. So Maria, the way that I see it play out in the workplace is that you're typically the mediator and the person that people come (laughs) to for advice and support. What's it like kind of having that role? I think that growing up, I was that person. And then in my family and with my kids, I am that person. And then I get, get to also do it here at work. So it's great. I love people and I love communicating with them. I think after taking the test and reading the descriptions, there's a bunch of different places to find descriptions that I do feel like a big part of what drives me is those relationships with other people. I have in the past had to, you know, kind of force myself to close my door and not let people in and make sure that I'm making time for myself as well. But I really do love kind of connecting the dots for people and listening and providing feedback just based on my own life experience. We joke in my family that even though I have, you know, a sister who's a nurse and a sister who's a teacher, sometimes I'm the one that everybody reaches out to for certain advice about things that, you know, a teacher might know pretty well or a nurse might know pretty well. But I also think that I've lived through, right? So my kids, my oldest is 12, my youngest is five. I've had a lot of kid experience. I've had a lot of people experience. I've I've worked here for so long um, that I've met a lot of people and interacted with a lot of different personalities. And so it's great, and I do I do have to make sure that it doesn't distract me from getting getting my own work done, but... Yeah, I think I think the two is definitely kind of that that helper role really does fit me. But I I hit high on a few others. So yeah, you were also high on the eight, which I think was really interesting. I am an eight, kind of through and through. And eights are kind of the rougher. Uh, Virginia, how do I say it nicely? Self confident. So yeah, you're very self confident. Yeah. A little outspoken, strong opinions, but yeah. like very hardworking. You know what you want. You go after it. Yeah. So usually eights and twos are kind of like two ends of the spectrum. So I thought it was really interesting that you had both of those together. But knowing you, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does make sense. When I saw your results, I was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. (laughs) But she's still a two, Lauren. (laughs) I still get Maria. Correct. (laughs) All right. Well, because Thanksgiving is tomorrow, let's talk turkey for a second. So growing up, it, you know, it must have been wild preparing in a house of nine kids for, you know, these huge Thanksgiving dinners. And you, though, are still often cooking and preparing for large gatherings. (laughs) And this Thanksgiving, you have a large group of people that you're hosting for. So what tips do you have for pulling off a large Thanksgiving dinner? The first is to do as much prep as you can ahead of time. 
we actually did a practice turkey, a practice Thanksgiving because we love turkey, but also because it was a really good way for us to identify what size turkey fit in our oven (laughs) and whether or not we could cook other things while the turkey was cooking for the real day. So we, we moved a little over a year ago and hadn't actually cooked a large turkey or a turkey at all in our oven and wanted to make that make sure my husband's a planner and I, I love it and I really appreciate it. So practicing that was really helpful. So obviously we don't have time to practice, but that kind of that prep, the idea of prepping and planning, I do usually lay out all the dishes that I'm going to serve everything in so that I can make sure I have space on the table or on the server for all of the dishes. And the first time we hosted Thanksgiving in a much smaller house, in a townhouse, I actually labeled every dish as well. So we had a smaller thing for the cranberry and the stuffing. And so everything had a label. That really was helpful because then I took all the labels and made sure that I had a list that matched up with the labels and I made sure everything got checked off. I didn't do that for my practice and I actually forgot to do a couple things, things that most people wouldn't forget, like make the gravy <laughs> and and the cranberry sauce. So those are kind of like those last minute things that you you do. You could do the cranberry ahead of time, but you can do at the end. And I had just kind of been like, let's get the turkey on the table and didn't take that step back and make the gravy. So I made it that night, the practice night. And then I froze it. So I have it for Thanksgiving and we're all set. Yeah. So then I now I don't have to remember that one. I just have to take it out of the freezer. You also had a a kind of a secret ingredient on your turkey. Do you want to talk about that? There were a couple, actually. (laughs) So there's a secret, a few secret ingredients, whiskey in the brine um, of the turkey. It just gives a ton of flavor and really um, it just really enhances, enhances the flavor of the turkey. But also... Kind of towards the end, I think everyone was impressed because the photos are really cool, but it actually really tastes good as well. The last 30 to 45 minutes, this is a tradition my, my husband's family always does, is that they put a bacon lattice over the turkey. So you've kind of, we cover it for the first kind of first half and let it cook through. And then for the second half, we, after basting a few times, we uncover it and let it get really brown and crispy. So you're crisping up that skin and rendering all the fat. And then we put the bacon on top for the last like 30 to 45 minutes. And you want to get that nice and brown and crispy. But it provides that extra additional layer of flavor, makes the gravy amazing. So I think now it's not a secret, but Bacon. Mm, bacon and whiskey. <laughs> Something I can always get behind. It's a solid combination. <laughs> All right. So to wrap us up, I wanted to just kind of get some rapid fire advice. So I'm going to ask a question. If you could answer it in maybe one to two sentences, real, real short. First question is, what do you think is the most important thing a mother can teach her children? Their faith. Yeah. And I think that if your kids can see you and your spouse really working together, to live that faith, but also to impart that on them. That's the biggest one. I think rounding a really close second kind of following up with that is really just that they should never be afraid to ask questions and never be afraid to come to you as a parent. Because I think once those doors are are kind of closed or shutting, it makes makes those relationships really hard. And it's really hard to then have the discussions about your faith and how you live that. What advice would you give to women who are are struggling with that idea of having a career and being a mom? So I would say that it's really tough to foresee how your life will play out. So I always I knew I always wanted to be a mom. I had friends in college who would always say to me, well, how do you just how do you know that? Like, how do you just know? And it was on my heart. I knew I wanted to be a mom. And that could have 
maybe manifested itself in, in other ways, but I was really blessed and lucky to, to become a mom. And then we made a conscious decision to stay in D.C. and live close to where we work and our kids and be close to where our kids go to school so that we could all be home together and enjoy our home and enjoy our family and enjoy dinner together every night. And so that did mean that I, I needed to go back to work. I think if you can find something that you're passionate about on the work side, I think there are there are probably a lot more untapped jobs for moms than people kind of imagine. And I have had many, many a friend tell me that they wish that they could have the situation that I did, that they they wish they could work outside the home. But it's not for everyone. I, I think if the means allow you to stay home, I, I choke all the time. I would I would take it in a heartbeat. I'd love to be home. But my, now my kids are in school, right? So my kids are in school full time. And being back at work is really good for me to have that outlet. And it is something that I, you know, I love to do. So take it, take it one day at a time. I think for people who, friends who have recently had babies, I know that their, even their mindset changes as, as soon as they hold that baby and they realize, right? I think your heart changes and you realize like, it's really important that I'm with my baby at home. And so, you know, you make the, those adjustments for your family, but it, it is never, never easy one way or the other. Yeah. So when you do have those few minutes to yourself, what do you find is the best way to unwind? So in the morning, that that prayer time is really helpful. I really have to force myself to make sure I take time for myself and I'll get my nails done or get my hair done. If I sit down to read, I typically fall asleep, but that would be something that I'd love to do without falling falling asleep. Um, And then I love to to sit with my husband and, and catch up on a show or two together, catch up on our days without the noise of the kids. It's awesome noise, but it, it can sometimes just really make those those conversations tough. So we'll meal plan together. Or we'll plan the weekend together. But for me, I was never like this growing up. So in a big family, I felt like if I was the only one home or one of a, just a couple people home, I really felt like I needed more noise and I needed more people. And I missed them immensely. It was hard for me. When I would babysit and the kids would go to bed, I would feel really like, where are all the people? Now, after having a family and after being a manager of people and kind of thinking about those times, I cra- crave the time where it's just me. But, you know, I-, I think that stages of life require kind of changes in that. And so it is amazing for me when I can go and run errands just me without the kids. Or just my husband and I without the kids. But also just time at home. If there is something that the kids can do and they can do it with my husband or with friends without me and I can be home by myself, it is amazing that the number of things you can get done in an empty house when there are no people in the way. And I really do love the quiet. I love it when they come home too, but I now am a my own space person, which is just crazy to think about because I remember very, very well feeling really uncomfortable when I was the only one home growing up. So we ask every one of our guests on the show this one question. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Yeah. So I love the question and I love hearing all the different answers. For me, I really do consider myself kind of that original feminist. You know, I think that if we could get it back to that, you know, I think we would claim it. I'd wear it. I'd wear it profoundly, you know, prominently. But yeah, I do. I consider myself that true, you know, feminist. It is sad that so many people who I know share that with me don't want to claim the word, don't want to own the word because of the negative, the negative connotation that 
since it's been kind of usurped. But yes, I do. The true, true feminist. <laughs> the original. I love that. <laughs> All right, Maria, thank you so much. Of course. That is going to be it for this week's episode of Problematic Women. Join us next week where we'll be back to our regular format where we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. And conservatives really need your support in the podcast world. We would so appreciate if you would take just a moment to give us a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make such a difference. Thanks again, Maria, for joining us, and have a great Thanksgiving. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.